Hey, great to see you all here today. Uh, I think we have something real exciting that's going to happen today. I mean, I'm, I'm going to speak for a while, but then the really exciting stuff's going to happen because we're going to worship, and uh, we're going to focus on Jesus. And when we do that, he reveals his presence. Nick was just saying that. When, when we worship, God delights in revealing his presence to us. And when his presence comes, healing comes. His power and his life come with his presence. And so, um, yeah, I'll try not to talk too long so we can get into that right away, okay? All right, all right. Hey, uh, Nick just mentioned Jack Deere. And uh, how many of you had heard of Jack Deere before? Anybody? Okay, some. That's great. I want to talk a little bit about Jack Deere because he really um, upended our world, really uh, t- turned our world upside down. In the mid-90s, my world and, and Laura's world and our family's world. But um, I, I had gone to a... Uh, when I got saved, let me back up to there. When I came to Jesus, I just read the Bible and I just thought, well, sure, it's all true. Jesus healed people. Yeah, I want, man, I want to see people healed. Jesus walked on water. I want to see that. Uh, people spoke in tongues. I want that. I'd like to experience that too, all of it. I was just all for it. Had you know, some minor experiences with, with God's presence and in, in this realm of the gifts of the Spirit. But um, then a few years later, I enrolled in seminary. And when I went to seminary, I learned that all these things don't happen anymore. That uh, healing, walking on water, uh, speaking in tongues, prophetic words, that those things were only needed for the very beginning of the church. And so we, we had teachings like, um, well, in Second Corinthians, there's a verse where the apostle Paul's defending the fact that he's a real apostle, and, and he says, the signs of an apostle, he says, I, I performed all the signs of an apostle among you. And so in the seminary that I went to, they took that verse and they said, see, the, the sign gifts, Holy Spirit gifts were given as signs to prove who the apostles were so that they could write the Bible, and then once we get the Bible, we don't need the gifts anymore. And if you really understood that, that the gifts are just an expression of God's heart, they're just an expression of God's presence, then it's almost tantamount to saying we don't need God anymore. Now, they would have never said that. This, I went to a good seminary, godly people. But, but I think that's a logical conclusion and a logical next step to that type of thinking. And so I came out of that seminary totally indoctrinated in that thinking that uh, the Holy Spirit was not working in any overt way. He didn't touch people. He didn't, you, you never felt warm because the Holy Spirit was touching you, or you never shook because the Holy Spirit was touching you. No prophetic words, no, no gifts of healing, anything like that. And we were in that, that setting uh, for 15 years. I taught against the gifts of the Spirit for 15 years. And at the end of those 15 years, about 1993 or so, I had a friend, a, a man in our church who was a seminary graduate from a school called Dallas Seminary. Anybody know about Dallas? Just, okay, some of you do. Uh, it was a school that also believed the gifts of the Spirit were dead. I went to a different school called Grace Seminary, but uh, very similar in our theology. And um, Leo, who had gone to Dallas, but nevertheless had more understanding of the Holy Spirit's ministry than I did, 
He took me aside after a Sunday morning service, and uh, he really challenged me. And, and he said, Pastor, and, and no matter how hard I'd try, I couldn't get him to call me by my first name. He always felt like he had to call me Pastor. But Pastor, you're not talking enough about the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, what do you mean? Well, you're, not, you're, you're, you're telling people what to do, but then they have to do it in their own strength because you're not pointing them to the Holy Spirit. And one of our arguments in, in the fundamentalist group I was with was, well, the Holy Spirit came to point to Jesus. And so he doesn't want us to point to him because he came to point to Jesus. And so we should never mention the Holy Spirit and that, that sort of type of thinking. But Leo uh, persevered in this challenge to me. And after about an hour and a half, our wives or kids are all out in the cars dying. Um, <laughs> we ended the conversation, and I walked away, and I said to myself, Leo's a good man. He cared enough about me, and he trusted God enough to come and confront me with this. I've got to at least be open to it. And so I just started saying, okay, God, if on... If the one out of 10 million chance that Leo is right, if that's right, then I, I want to know it. I mean, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't cracking my heart open too much, but um, I just said, okay, God, if Leo's right, then show me that. Show me that he's right and show me what I need to learn. And I went on a quest of reading books about the Holy Spirit and read several books about the Holy Spirit. I was surprised to see what some different heroes of mine from past generations believed about the Holy Spirit, like Dwight Moody and R.A. Torrey and, uh, and, and, and um, different guys like that. But um, after a period of time, I read a book by uh, Charles Stanley on the Holy Spirit, and in it, he talked about nudges. He said, the Holy Spirit will just give us little nudges just to kind of like direct us as to what to do. Like give us a little nudge that says, go talk to that person. Now, to me, a nudge was okay. I'm, I'm okay with opening up to nudges. I'm not okay opening up to prophetic words or tongues or anything like that yet, but nudges, little nudges from the Holy Spirit sound kind of nice. So I said, okay, God, I will, you know, if that's, if that's how you want to work, here I am. And I'm thinking, man, I'm making great progress. I'm really pressing into the things of the Spirit now, you know. I'm, I'm going to be a Holy Spirit guy from this moment on because I'm open to nudges now. <laughs> and I experienced something in a pastor's meeting one day where there were half a dozen pastors around the table talking and sharing. And uh, it was a light, fun atmosphere. And somebody said something that reminded me of a joke I had. And... Um, or I knew, and I was on the brink of telling this joke, and a nudge came into my heart, and that nudge just kind of like, just kind of, I don't know what it felt like, but it was just a push, kind of like, kind of like, it felt kind of like this, like if my wife was sitting beside me, and, and she reached over and poked me in the leg, you know, saying, hey, you're headed the wrong direction right now, that's how I took it, and so I, I held back, I didn't tell that joke, and within a minute, that man sitting beside me sharing some things about his life, I realized why. That even though, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the joke, but it could have been hurtful. And, and I think it would have been hurtful to this guy. And so I went away from that thinking, wow, okay, God, so you do do these things. And this is the kind of thing I've needed for quite a while. I need someone, you know, kind of like nudge me and tell me when it's time to stop talking and don't tell that joke, do tell this one. So... I thought, pretty good stuff. I'll be happy with that. And, and I meant it. 
I wasn't going to read any more about the Holy Spirit. I had opened up now almost to being like crazy about <laughs> stuff, you know, in my thinking, you know, from where I was coming from. And um, then one day I saw a, a, a book advertised in a magazine. It was written by Jack Deere, who is going to be our guest speaker here in a couple of weeks. And it was called Surprised by the Power of the Holy Spirit. Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. And I saw it in a, in a magazine, and I thought, oh, it looks interesting, but I just decided I'm not reading any more books on the Holy Spirit, so it's out. And so, didn't even think about it. But then Lori and I went to a conference, and it wasn't our denomination's conference, because our group would have never had this book at the book table. Um, we, we had in our statement a specific paragraph that addressed what we called the sign gifts, and specifically stated that they died with the apostles, that we no longer need the gifts of prophecy and tongues and healing and words of wisdom and, and the various other gifts related to that. And so every year, in fact, as a pastor in that group, I had to sign a statement saying I agreed with that. And at this point in time, there were like 300 of our churches just in the state of Michigan, and I was the vice president of the group. And so I'm processing through these things, and I'm also trying to, you know, I don't want to break faith with, you know, with my brothers in, and sisters in this uh, group, the IFCA. But um, we went to a different conference, okay, that wasn't quite as rigid as that. And on their book table, they had a book the, the book Jack Deere had written, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. And so I picked it up, and I turned, I just opened it up, and I just happened to turn to the page where he dealt with that verse that I referred to a couple moments ago in 2 Corinthians 12, where the Apostle Paul said, all the signs of an apostle were worked among you, you know, by me is the implication. And whereas we had taken that to mean Signs mean healing, prophecy, stuff like that. And therefore, those gifts were given only to validate apostles. And once the apostles had written scripture, then we no longer needed all those gifts. So Jack Deere looks at this book, or in this book by Jack Deere, I start reading that page, and I realized that he actually exegeted the passage. Let me tell you what that means if you don't know. Exegeted means you just, you really look at it. You look at the original languages, you look at the verbs, the nouns, the sentence structure, and more than anything else, you look at the context. And he showed very clearly that when Paul said the signs of an apostle were worked among you, that Paul did not mean sign gifts. He didn't, he wasn't referring to prophecy and healing and um, and, and the other charismatic gifts that, that we identify in the New Testament, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, gifts of faith. He was referring to something much broader than that. It might have been a small part of it, but there was a much broader reference. And so, so my point is this. As I'm reading this, I'm realizing all the books I've read, all they've done is quote that verse and then make an assumption about what it means. And they never really dug into what the verse itself means. And here this guy is actually studying the verse itself. Does that make sense? I hope you see why that captured me. Because I was a Bible guy. 
I was a Bible guy. I was, if it's in the Bible, I'm for it. If it's not, then I'm, I'm against it, that sort of thing. And spending 20, 25, 30 hours a week studying, that's what I did in those days. And so I had to see something actually in the Bible from someone who knew how to study the Bible. And so it, it just, it captured my heart. And the next, that night we went home, Lori and I, turned on TV, and we've never really been big fans of Christian TV. Uh, you know, I'm, I have nothing against it. God bless. I mean, I know tons of believers have been blessed, but it's just never been the, you know, just, just what we've preferred. But this night, we turned on, and we went to the Christian channel, and Paul Crouch was on. And he has this distinguished-looking guy sitting across from him, and he's talking to him. And I don't know how to describe him other than he looked like somebody I would have gone to seminary with, okay? And he's talking to this guy, and I turned to Lori, and I said, I'll bet you that's Jack Deere, because I had just seen, I'd just seen that book that afternoon. And, and now we're seeing him here on TV that night. So the next day, I drove to Flint and bought his book and began reading it. And as I read it, and I saw that he actually dealt with the substance of all of the arguments I had used to refute the gifts of the Spirit, and he just destroyed every argument. He just showed how it wasn't biblical, wasn't even reasonable in most cases. And that, that it, I mean, I'm reading this, and I remember the very moment where I sat back in my chair, and it was like a shocking moment to me, but I sat back after reading this one section, and I thought to myself, I could be wrong. And you have to understand, in this group, I mean, we all agreed that the gifts of the Spirit were dead. And we built this whole thing, partly at least, on that belief. And so now I'm sitting here thinking, wait a second, I could be wrong about this. Where where my life has been directed for the last 20 years has been based upon one thing, gifts dead. And now I'm sitting there thinking, maybe, maybe gifts are alive. And so I took the book to Lori because I didn't want to make this big transition and have her not make it with me. And she read a chapter. And um, I said, what do you think? Thinking she's going to say, well, this argument, that argument, let's discuss this. And she just looked at me and she said, oh, I'm convinced. (laughs) Yeah. What do you mean you're convinced? And she said, well, I've never seen any good reason to say the gifts of the Spirit were dead anyway. (laughs) So I I, I can't remember if I actually said this, but I should have. You mean you haven't been listening to me for the last 15 years? (laughs) And the bottom line is, I think it was kind of like, if we could really answer this, she would say, hey, you know what? These three kids here, take up just about all of my life, and four now, four, we had four at that time, and right here, four, number four, (laughs) and uh, I just didn't want to make an issue out of it with you, you're my husband, and so at any rate, when she came on that way, it was kind of like, well, okay, this is not going to divide our marriage, it just freed me up just to pursue it, and so we just uh, kept, we kept pursuing together then, and uh, understanding what does this mean. We finally came to the conclusion that we could no longer sign that statement that said the gifts of the Spirit were dead. 
because we couldn't say it. We weren't sure they were alive yet because we hadn't seen them, but we, we knew we could not say that the Bible says they're dead. And so I resigned my position in uh, the organization that I was in, and um, a couple months later resigned at the church we were at, and uh, had the just the goal of leaving there without causing a stir, because as we looked at it, we had changed. I had changed. They hired me under one set of circumstances, one, one set of beliefs. I changed, and so it wasn't fair for me to try to change the whole church. Went to the elder board, talked to them about it. Now, if they had all been behind taking the church in a new direction, then we would have done that, but they weren't. They were, they were not for it. And so we were just doing our best to slip away quietly without causing too much of a disturbance. And um, somewhere along in that period, we ended up um, going to Kansas City to a vineyard conference. And in fact, this was after I resigned. We resigned, and we're figuring out where we're going to go next. We have no idea where we're going to move, what we're going to do. We knew at this point we wanted to go close, move close to a vineyard. Uh, came close to moving to Cincinnati at that time. Didn't work. But um, we went to Kansas City. And if you were, were you here last week? Did you hear my story about the worship? I'm going to tell this real briefly for those that didn't hear it. First night, we're sitting in this auditorium of 2,000 charismatic maniacs and uh, realized, like, I just preached my last sermon at a conservative uh, cessationist. Cessationist, that word means people who believe the gifts have ceased. It's not a derogatory term. It's a term a person would use of themselves. So I just, let, I just quit preaching at this cessationist church a week or two ago, and now we're sitting here in Kansas City. Uh, we sat on the bleachers uh, as far back as we could get from the action, and there are 2,000 people here, and the whole place is just like in an uproar. Whole sections are just jumping, and you know, just 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 like just like uh, under, the whole the whole crowd is just like going up and down, and worship and cheering. And I look in another section. Literally, everybody in their seats just goes, and they all just fall off onto the floor. And every time that the speaker would stand up to speak, the whole place would go into an uproar of laughter. And he couldn't speak. And this went on for like a half hour. Like every 10 minutes, he'd try to stand up, and it's just the laughter. And so we're sitting there, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is everything my fundamentalist brothers have warned me about. How do we get out of this? Can we cash in our tickets and go home early? And then a guy stands up who's dancing, tall guy, long, long, long hair, tambourine with streamers, and he's really just worshiping, and I looked at him, and I'm judging this guy. He, who does he think he is to make a show out of himself like that? That's not honoring God. You know, he's, how dare he do that? You know, it's just, I'm just judging him, and the Lord spoke to me so clearly and said, what do you see on his face? And you know the answer? What was the answer? Joy. I said joy. And the Lord said, what's in his heart? What was the answer? I don't know. And that's right. I don't know. And then the Lord said, that's right, and you don't need to know. We'll just leave it at that for today. That's right. You don't need to know. You don't need to know. I know. 
and you don't need to judge other people's expression or what I'm doing in their life. I know what's in their heart. And with that, I got up. I said, okay, if that's the way it is, then I'm in. And I got up, and I walked down to the front, and I met a happy layman who pastors the Champagne Vineyard and asked Happy for a job. And he said, I can't. You don't know anything about the vineyard, you know, and et cetera. But he said, you could move to Champagne, and we'll help you learn. And that's what we wanted to do. And so the rest of that week we spent with his people, hanging out with his staff and with them, getting to know them. They're, I mean, they're interpreting everything for us. You know, like, why is that lady three rows behind us shaking her head so fast that it looks like it's going to just spin off and go off into space? And, and they would explain to us what was happening there, or at least what they knew was happening there, what they thought, and, you know, stuff like that. So we went to the end of that week, and by this time, I'm convinced we're moving to Champagne. That's exciting. Uh, we know these people. We're moving to Champagne. Wow, yippee. We're going to learn about the Holy Spirit. And um, then the last day of the conference, there was a, a, a prophet named John Paul Jackson, who I don't know how, how many know who he is. Okay, sprinkling. He was a very well known, godly man, prophet, very highly gifted prophetically. Uh, back in those days, and uh, well, uh, up until the present, he just passed away about a year ago, or I think, yeah, just about a year ago. But um, I went up to him on Saturday, and uh, he was standing by himself, and just, hey man, you know, how you doing? Thank you for your ministry this week, it's really great. And he asked me about my story, where we were, what we were doing, and I told him, and then he looked at me and he said these words. He said, stay in the land of your anointing, okay? I want to get out of that land. He says, stay in the land of your anointing. Rent a place and they will come to you. And I took that to mean don't leave Owasso. Don't go to Champagne. You're going to stay right there where you are. Which we didn't want to stay there. We didn't want to to hurt this other church. We didn't want to take people away from it. We didn't want to be there and be in a battle like that or or anything like that, and we wanted to go someplace where we could learn about the gifts of the Spirit. So my face, my facial expression, if I was like an eight on the one to ten joy scale, when he spoke those words to me, my face dropped to about a minus 30 instantly. I mean, seriously, I'm st- and, and he said that, and, and it just shocked me, and, and then he looked at me, and he hugged me, and he said, oh, come on, man, it's going to be Okay don't worry, it's going to be okay. And he patted my back, told me it was going to be okay. But I didn't think it was going to be okay because I didn't want to stay in that town. And uh, I was so depressed the rest of that day. It wasn't until we're flying home the next day. And um, um, as we're flying home, the... uh, uh, Wait a second. Okay, as we're flying home, uh, the the lights somehow just cut my my thinking process off there when they changed. Um, We're flying home, and we're flying over the Ohio River. I remember looking down at the Ohio River, and just as we were crossing it, the thought came into my mind, and this was just revelation from God, hey, it's not so bad if we have to stay in Owasso. You know, if we're going to stay there, that's where Jesus wants us to be. That's where he's going to be working. He's going to be with us. So how can that be bad? And so I went from like a buys down to a minus 50 by that time, and I went from a minus 50 up to about a plus 8 or 9, maybe a 10, 11 or 12 even. 
And by the way, I am not like bipolar or anything, okay? <laughs> I've checked, all right? I've checked, and I'm not. But um, we went back to our town. It was a nice, beautiful little town in Michigan, 10,000, 20,000 people, somewhere in that range. And um, we, we took it seriously, and we said, okay, rent a place. All right, let's look for a house to rent. So I call a realtor, and we, get, and we start looking for places to rent. And at that point in time, there just was nothing. And that's what the realtor told me. There's nothing to rent in this town right now that would be suitable for your family. And so we look for a hall to rent or a, a storefront or something like that. And again, we're told there's really nothing available right now at this moment. Now, if we had waited a month, there probably would have been. But we were on, a, you know, we were on the roll here. We were on the move. And so hearing that and evaluating the whole thing of the word that John Paul had given me and everything else God has spoken to us, uh, we made the decision to move to Champaign. So we visited Champaign one weekend and then drove home and made the decision on the drive home to move there. Now, why would God give me a word like that that really seemed like it was from God that was just like confusing and that wasn't going to be fulfilled? Why would he? Well, do you know that there are times that God gives us words to uncover our hearts? When when God said to Moses, one point, and listen, if God speaks, that's like the ultimate prophetic word, okay? Because all a prophetic word is one of us speaking what God wants to speak at that moment. So if God speaks directly, that's just like, Uh, a normal prophetic word on steroids. So God speaks to Moses, and he says, these people are wicked. He says, Moses, get out of my way. I'm going to destroy them. That's what he said. And what did Moses do? Moses said, okay, God, if that's your will, I will not fight your will. I'll step out of the way, and I will allow you to destroy your nation because you have prophesied, you've spoken prophetically that that's your will, and that's what you want to do, so have at it. It's not what Moses did. What that, what that word did was it stirred up in Moses. It uncovered in Moses' heart what was really there, and that was a love for the nation, a love for God's people. And he interceded for God's people. He said, you can't do it, Lord. Don't do it. If you do that, then all the Egyptians will say, you brought them out here just to destroy them. And, and, and they'll, they won't know who you are. They won't understand your goodness or your love or your mercy. So you can't do it, God. And he pleads with God. And so it says God relented. Some translations say he changed his mind. Some, we, some of us have a hard time with that. But, but he relented. And he said, okay, okay, I won't. I won't destroy them based on your intercession. So how many of you know that that was a prophetic word that didn't happen because Moses interceded? And and that word drew out of Moses' heart what God wanted to draw out of Moses' heart. Isn't that something? Yeah, that's good, isn't it? That's true. That's what God wants to do. He wants to draw out of our hearts. And sometimes with prophetic words, it's not so much that, yep, yep, you're really going to move to Alaska as are you willing to move to Alaska? And for us, it wasn't, you're going to stay in Owasso. It was, for me particularly, are you willing to stay in Owasso? Are you willing to do that? And I had to come to a point that I said, yeah, I'm willing to do that. And when, when that happened, then I was able to leave with a clean heart. Does that make sense? I can leave with a clean heart then. 
And so uh, God works, God gives us choices. He lays choices out in front of us. He put two, two trees in the garden. He had one, the tree of life, one, this tree, don't eat it. He gave them a choice. Do you know why? Because love always requires choices. And do you know what else requires choices? Is faith. Faith and trust and confidence re- require choices. If I don't have a choice, then how can I express confidence in God? If I don't have a choice, how can I express faith in God? And so God lays out choices for us. He lays them out so we can search our hearts, so we can, and, and listen, I've said this in recent weeks too, sometimes he just lays out two or three choices, pick any one, I'm going to bless any one of these you choose. And so we don't have to be so hyper about this. We don't have to be so hyper about, oh my, what if I miss God's will? I might miss, well, if you make the wrong choice with the right heart, you know, like a GPS, GPS system, when you make, you turn wrong, the GPS just reroutes you. You make the wrong choice with the right heart, if, if there is a wrong choice in that situation, and God's going to reroute you right back on track, and you don't, ha- you don't have to uh, fret about that. But... Um, this whole idea of choosing and, and uh, really choosing the adventures, the kind of like the title of this message, uh, last couple of weeks, um, what, what does it take? What kind of faith is it? Do you remember last week we talked about that? What kind of faith it takes? Childlike faith, doesn't it? Childlike faith. Remember that little boy? Uh, he was close enough to Jesus that... He knew what the problem was. He was there when he heard Jesus and the apostles talking about the need for food. Where are we going to get food? I've got some. Here it is. And I I said this last week, but I'm convinced there were other people right there that heard that that had food tucked away. They didn't come forward with their food because it takes childlike faith. And a couple characteristics of childlike faith are, one, it's uncomplicated. It's not complicated. There aren't all of these all of these angles that you have to think through and what's my angle on doing this and what am I going to get out of it and how's it going to... It's just uncomplicated. You know, it's unjaded. There's no cynicism in childlike faith. There's no, well, boy, people have asked this of me before and I've given it over and I've never gotten anything back. They've taken advantage of me. There's none of that. It's unjaded. It's, it's simple, it's uncomplicated, it's, it's not highly sophisticated in its whole analysis of things. One thing, childlike faith, is eager for relationship. Can you get that? Childlike faith is eager for relationship. It's just standing there saying, Mom, what's next? Dad, what's next? What are we going to do? What are we going to do next? It's, it's just eager for real. It, it wants to be involved. It wants to be part of, and it trusts. It just trusts. Yeah, I have a story I'm going to share with you that I didn't the other two services. I hope that's okay. But um, I have more than that, I hope it kind of works. But um, when I was in high school, I worked at a Christmas tree farm, and in the summer would trim the trees, and in the winter would cut them and bale them and put them on railroad cars, and they would ship them you know, all over the country. And um, a lot of guys worked there, but this one weekend, uh, I was partnered up with a guy, I I believe his name was Danny. Um, uh, It's 40 years ago, so I can't remember for sure, but it was something like that. 
And Danny was a big, uh, big boy. He was a big, well, he was a man in his 20s, early 20s, but he was big and strong. And um, he, he was uh, mentally challenged. I mean, big time, mentally challenged. And um, other guys, you know, they, they would make fun of him. And sometimes it seemed like he didn't even know they were. You know, he'd just be doing what they wanted him to do, and he wasn't even sure. But uh, this day, I was partnered with him. And so the boss took us out from the normal workplace and drove us around to half a dozen places and, you know, left us to cut trees. So we'd stay there and cut 20 trees. And he'd tell me what to do and then we'd work together and get it done. And uh, other places he stayed and worked with us. But we worked all day long together, had a great time together. And um, as we drove back and as we come back into the, the, the nursery and we're sitting in the back of the truck... Right before we jumped out of the truck, Danny looked at me, patted me on the knee, and with a big grin on his face, he said, we sure have been good buddies today, haven't we? And I thought of that when I was thinking of childlike, you know, a childlike heart. You know, we've been good buddies. You know, we've been friends. We've got to do this together. And, and I just thought of that, that there's something like that in our hearts that God wants to see, just innocence childlikeness, not, not complicated, not trying to figure the whole thing out. We spent the day together. We worked together. We cut those trees down together, and we've been good buddies. And the childlike heart looks at Jesus and just wants that. He looks at God and just says, yeah, I just want that. I want some intimacy with you. I want to know you, and I want to be close to you. You know, there's um, this whole childlike thing. We think in a childlike way. And we exercise faith in a childlike way, but we don't think of ourselves as children. Okay, I've got to say this. We, we're not thinking of ourselves as children. All right, there's a difference here. And um, we see ourselves as children of the king. We are, see ourselves as sons and daughters of the king. We see ourselves as people who walk in authority. We see ourselves as Jesus sees us, as people who have been changed, no longer sinners at the core, but righteous and new and redeemed. And we see ourselves as people who walk in power. Do you know, and I got this from Chris Vallotton this week, what Jesus said about John the Baptist. Jesus said about John the Baptist that John was the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. He said that. That means that John the Baptist was greater than Moses. John the Baptist had more wisdom than Daniel. John the Baptist had more of a heart to worship and access to that than King David because he was greater. He was the greatest. And he was the greatest because he had the most complete role. All the rest of them had bits and pieces over hundreds and hundreds of years. John had the full picture to declare the Messiah is here. He's here right now. And then John's era ended. It ended right then. And a new era began. And in that new era, once Jesus has died on the cross and risen from the dead, when someone becomes a believer, they get changed inside. We get new hearts. And the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us, whereas that didn't happen before. Jesus comes and lives inside of us, whereas that didn't happen before. You know, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, with Moses and uh, Elijah, and 
uh, they are glowing. Moses and Elijah come from heaven to meet Jesus, and Peter, James, and John are there, and they get to see the whole thing. And it's just this awesome thing. And Peter says, this is wonderful, Lord. Let's build three little huts for each of you so we can just stay here. You know, what Peter was thinking was that Jesus had finally gotten up to the level of Moses and Elijah. That he had, he's now, boy, he's at their level. Let's just stay right here. This is awesome. But what, what happened? God breaks in and God speaks. And, he, and it says he literally interrupted Peter. While Peter was still speaking, God spoke. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Have you ever been interrupted by somebody? Okay, be interrupted by God sometime. Wow. Um, so God interrupts Peter and he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then the cloud disappears and Moses and Elijah are gone. There's a message in that. Here's the message. It's this. Something new's happening. The old is gone. Moses and Elijah, they are not the standard. They are not the high point. Jesus is still coming to the high point. This is a new thing that's happening, and this new thing is, is, is you listen to Jesus. And so John, greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, and then the next thing Jesus said was, but the least in the kingdom are greater than John. And so today, you and I, when we, when we accept Christ, we are born again into the kingdom of God, fully into the kingdom of God, family of God, changed hearts, Jesus in us. All right, anybody here think that you might qualify to be the least in the kingdom? Boy, there are certainly times I'd raise my hand to that, I'll tell you. You know what? You have access to more things than John the Baptist did. You have access to more wisdom, more power, more authority than Daniel did. You have the potential to change your world a hundred times more than Daniel changed his or than Moses changed his because you have Christ in you. Jesus is in you and he is the fullness of wisdom and revelation and everything that God has to offer us. And so when we carry ourselves We carry ourselves with this childlike faith that, man, Jesus, I just want to be buddies. I want to do whatever you want me to do. I want to go, I want to be with you. And at the end of the day, I want to be able to look at you and say, we've been good buddies today. Man, we're close. But we look at ourselves as Jesus in us. And when we carry ourselves, we carry ourselves as the children of a king, royalty. Because where you go, you carry Jesus. So when you walk into the room, what happens? Everything changes. Darkness starts to tremble. You know that? Because you carry Jesus. It's not because of me. It's not because of you, but you carry Jesus. And you've been made a child of God. And, and by that I mean it's not, not because of you or me and our natural birth and our natural wisdom. But it's what Jesus has made us. We carry the kingdom. We carry the life of Jesus. And so when you walk into a room, everything changes. And all you have to do is realize it and release it. You release it. You walk into that room, you look around, you say, wow, Jesus, what are you going to do here? What are we doing? What's going to happen next? Something crazy happens. I can't wait to see how you handle it, Jesus. 
you know, and, and, and we walk in that releasing. You, you walk in, you're walking past somebody to get to the punch bowl, and as you, as you brush past them, you're saying, Jesus, bless them. You know, Holy Spirit, come and release your presence right here, right at this spot in the room, Lord. Anybody that walks through this spot, Lord, let them sense that you're here. And you're just walking around just releasing your, and, and, and it leads us into conversations with people that are just loving and gentle, but so Jesus-focused that it releases God's power. So, um, yeah, we're going to meditate on that as, as we worship. I think it, it, it uh, is kind of like part of the theme of our worship today. And worship is going to be awesome, okay? So get ready. Come down front to worship, um, and God's presence is just powerful here today. And so get ready. I, I want to say this. If you're here with a longing in your heart, maybe it's a longing for a, a lost child, or you're just longing for the completion of some promise of God that you received at some point years ago, um, or longing to be free of something in your life, there is freedom today. There's answers today. And so in worship, bring that to God and let him touch you and let him minister to you.